This morning, we wanted to take this first Sunday of the month, kind of take a moment of pause, maybe have a church discussion concerning the current events that we find ourselves surrounded by. In a series that we do occasionally called, What in the World is Going On? And today we entitle it, 2015, A Year in Review. I find myself, as I get older, at the end of every year, taking a time to reflect not only on the past year, but to consider the possibilities of the new year. Are you like that? Just kind of weigh things out. Kind of look at what the landscape looks like from behind in the rearview mirror and what still lies ahead of us. Well, if you're not there yet, you will be as you get older, considering all that has happened and transpired during that year. Now, every individual is different. Their own personal statistics uh, and uh, demographics change the way they might view the year in the past or the year coming forward. Depending on what age you are, you might have a tendency to be more optimistic or to think more, um, I don't know, I would say maybe more, in some regards, fatalistically, concerning the perception of the current year or the year that is still yet to come. If you're older, you may tend to ponder longer upon the events of the year and consider their ramifications and consider how they will play out into the near future. Circumstances of life always change how we regard the year in the past and considering the year in the future. For some, it was the greatest year because they got married or they got engaged or they had a child. And so it was the greatest year ever. For others, that same year from one life event, maybe a diagnosis of a terminal disease or a disease that's going to require a routine of treatment can change the course and the atmosphere of that year completely. Whatever your uh, expectations were for that year may somehow skew your picture of the year past. You had set out with certain objectives and goals and expectations, and if they haven't come to pass, you say, oh, it was a terrible year. If they have come to pass, uh, you say, oh, it was a great year. And again, the objectives and the goals that we set out, if we meet them or come close to them or don't realize them at all, we have a tendency to uh, determine if it was a good year or a bad year. But what I'm getting at in all of these cases is that they are very subjective in nature. And they are completely subjected to my own personal experience within that year. Does that make sense? Meaning I'm not looking farther. I'm not looking above these things. I'm looking at what has happened and transpired in my life. And therefore I've determined that the past year was good or bad. And therefore the future is going to be either good or bad. And when we have vision like that, we often miss some of the most important events of that current year. Here in America, I believe that all of us struggle with that type of vision. Our isolation here in the United States, and I call it that because we are often isolated from so many things that happen around the world 
that we don't take into consideration the ramification of those events in our equating of the new year or of the year that has just passed. And so it's important for us to understand that we must have a vision of things in a broader perspective to understand what has happened and what is going to take place going forward. From my perspective, a 47-year-old man, told you my age. How old are you? No, just kidding. A husband, a father, a pastor of 19 years here at this church, three years as an assistant before that at another church. I've been a Christian for 30 years this year. And I look at the events that has transpired in the last year, And the word that I wrote down after viewing the events of last year alone was this, concern. I am greatly concerned that we are making decisions as an individual and as a nation that may be temporally expedient, but in the long term, they are detrimental to the health of our nation to the health of our own personal lives. Again, many of the decisions that we see being made on a global scale appear to remedy things for the moment without taking into consideration the ramifications of how these decisions are going to affect us in the long term. Many political decisions are being made in the temporal And therefore, any consequence that resolves from these temporal decisions doesn't really matter because that politician will or will not be in office any longer. Most likely will not. Decisions are being made, world events are occurring that I believe is changing the landscape of our future and the world in which we know it. And yet they seem temporally expedient, but they're devastating in the long term. In the wake of that concern, when I try to qualify, why am I so concerned? I'm so concerned because I didn't realize how fast things could change. I mean, let's be honest. Things are changing at light speed all around us. And sometimes you're you have to catch your breath. What happened today? Who made that decision, you know, unilaterally, without any kind of oversight or any kind of accountability? What? What are we doing now? How much are we spending? And it just keeps going. Again, trying to fix the immediate problem without considering the long-term ramifications of that immediate fix. And we find ourselves in a very detrimental position. Not only domestically, but globally. We are making decisions on a global scale that appear to be great at the moment, allow the individuals to take a curtain call and to grab that latest soundbite that sounds so good, until you read the details of the agreements that they make and realize that, oh, okay, whatever they may have think that they have resolved here at the moment, uh, 10 years from now, that's not going to be such a good deal. But they're not going to care. They're not going to be in office any longer. 
Is that really what's happening in the United States of America? Because from my perspective, that sure seems to be what's happening. But here's the other thing that I'm greatly concerned about. Because many Americans have lost what I call a historical contextualization, we are making decisions at the moment that if we would just consider history and we would look back and we would notice and see that those same decisions were made before and they always failed. And yet, because we do not learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it, aren't we? And that seems to be the case of what's happening again today. We are making decisions divorced from any historical contextualization that would allow us to learn from history. And therefore, we may think that we're fixing something on the surface, but in actuality, we are making things a lot worse. But then you couple that with the apparent indifference of many Americans concerning these things. They say to themselves, I just don't care about this. It's so screwed up. It it doesn't matter. It's not going to make any difference. Wait a minute. Do you realize that you have the freedom and the luxury to say that because of everything that transpired prior to that point? Meaning you can take this indifferent position and posture because of the freedoms that were provided for you in the past. People are just throwing up their hands saying, I don't care, it's going to happen, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and there's no real thing, nothing I can do about it, etc. That's a cop-out, man. Let's, tell, let's say that to the men who landed on the Normandy beaches. You want to talk about an insurmountable odds. You want to talk about an endeavor that seemed to be impossible. And yet we, today, with our cynical responses to so many things, just want to check out. And so many have the lack of courage to bring about the diligence needed to confront and to resolve the issues at hand. Many have what I call the wait-and-see attitude. Yeah, that's again, that's worked wonderfully in the past. Let's wish, wait and see. I know the dam's cracked and it's leaking in multiple places, but let's wait and see. Maybe a fish will get stuck up against the other side and plug the dam. Let's wait and see, right? How many people here with basements, if you saw your basement flooding, you know what, let's just wait and see what happens. <laughs> Honey, what's on TV and what's for dinner tonight? Really? Nobody would react that way. The basement's flooding, folks. Okay? we got to be honest with ourselves. The basement's flooding. And I think it's time that we get our heads out of the sand and really understand that. Please know that the decisions we make today will affect us tomorrow. Today we are laying the groundwork for the events of the future and what is going to transpire. We all know that to be true. But it's difficult to wrap our arms around that truth because with that acknowledgement comes great responsibility. And it then requires us to weigh the cost of our decision. It requires us to take a moment of pause to really consider what I do next. 
Though this may seem expedient at the moment, it's going to devastate us in the end. And I don't believe that we are seeing the resolve from leaders today and the willingness to do that because often what's needed to be done requires sacrifice and people are no longer willing to do that. So the question then becomes, what is going on today that is laying the groundwork for the events of tomorrow? And my answer to that was one word, everything. Let us not be naive any longer. Let us wake up and realize that things are happening at breakneck speed. If we were to look just beginning domestically, things are happening in our nation again. We are making decisions at the moment that seem to rectify the problem on the surface, but do not really correct the overall issue. We love and seem to be very uh, equipped to deal with symptoms, but we never deal with the actual issue or a problem itself in much of what we do. We are making decisions today that give the people, often the majority, what they want at the moment with very little consideration of what's going to transpire next. And here in the United States of America, we have made so many of those decisions over the course of the year that I think that we, if we were to consider them all at once, it might be somewhat overwhelming. This nation allowed nine people to redefine marriage. Do you not think that this is going to change the fabric of our society going forward? We can't even comprehend the problems that it is going to create and how it is going to change our social society going forward. We did it for such a small percentage of the people of this nation. And even fewer of that percentage is actually taking advantage of what was just passed. And yet, we in our audacity said that we're going to change things. This is how we are going to lead without any regards to the future. In the 1960s, President Kennedy invoked a study because he was concerned that divorce was going to have great ramification upon the social fabric of the society, the divorce itself. When the reports came back in the early 1960s, because divorce was so rare, it was a minor occurrence at that time, the analysts believed that divorce would really have no impact upon society whatsoever, and therefore he dismissed his concerns. Today, we see that divorce has changed the fabric of our society, hasn't it? We also see that it has changed our legal system where the courts are now in intervening in family manners that didn't happen 40, 50, 60 years ago to the degree that it's happening today. There are repercussions. God said it this way, folks. Whatever you sow is what you reap. What we do today has effects in the future, and we are making bad decisions today. 
Let's talk about the urban violence that continues to erupt here in the United States of America. Let's talk about those who continuously press this race card and use it in every option and every opportunity they can to justify what is happening. Let's talk about how often our police officers are put in a certain light and then are accused of certain things based upon certain perspectives. And often when the whole truth comes out, it wasn't anything what they originally thought it was. In this year, we still had Ferguson pouring out into 2015. We saw the riots in Philadelphia. Here in Chicago, we had 470 murders in 2015. Oh, and by the way, another 2,900 people were shot. Violence is erupting in the urban settings of our, of our nation. And yet, everything that we did that we thought was going to rectify those problems in the last 30, 40 years seems to have had no avail to it. They were problematic then, they are problematic today. Let's talk about the American economy that nobody really wants to discuss anymore. I just did my budget for 2016. I make, we make so much money. That means I can spend so much money. And hopefully what I spend is less than what I make, and I have a little savings at the end of the year, right? Now, for some reason, our federal government looks at balances completely differently. And that a few trillion here and there over budget, not in savings, but in spending, is okay. Not that we can ever pay down the national debt of this country, not that we can do anything to resolve it at this point unless we make great sacrifices, which we are unwilling to do. We keep passing budgets, one right after another, that simply passes the problem to future generations. Whatever we sow is what we're going to reap, folks. The states are even in worse shape. And we live in one of the states that, again, uses the same math that our federal, federal government does, and we still cannot rectify the situation. We have so much coming in, we can only have so much going out. You know, again, it's not rocket science. But again, we have justified things. We have desensitized ourselves to these things where we've now uh, come to the conclusion that debt is just a normal part of life. Really? When does it all catch up to us? How volatile is our economy? Why is it that every time the stock market in the United States of America in 2015 dipped in any degree, everybody went, <gasps> because we have to maintain that steady cash flow. Because if we don't, we're going to be in problems. We made decisions in the past that are, we're reaping now in the future. How is it that for the very first time, America no longer leads the world in innovation? Meaning we're not creating new things. 
men who have started things and changed the world with their innovation, even the great Apple computer company this year, between July and December, lost 20, I'm sorry, $220 billion in five months. $160 billion of that was lost in the last month alone. Why did they lose $160 billion of stock revenue? Let me tell you why. Because of one report. The IDC wrote a report measuring the consumption of smartphones going, future, going forward and determined that smartphones will no longer be bought at the rate that they were in the past. And people panicked and $160 billion was pulled out of Apple in the course of two days. You know what that tells me? There's a lot of insecurity in the economic market. Again, decisions that we made in the past, we are now reaping in the future. Putting our hope and faith in these things that now look so volatile and are causing great concern. How is it that Planned Parenthood could be exposed in the manner it was in 2015, and yet our federal government refuses to defund that horrid institution? How is it possible that we can be selling baby parts, and it somehow, some way doesn't... It got attention, right? And people scrambled, and everybody tried to cover their backsides. But we keep funding this thing. Year after year after year. Because of one decision. Roe versus Wade, right? Look at how it's all changed. Look at how many babies have been murdered since that one decision was made. Terrific, guys. We need to wake up a little bit, I think. Then our federal government... made a deal with one of our closest, heart-loving, warm friends, Iran. And in it, we tried to control their development of nuclear weapons. A 159-page document was created, and this document then was administered, and they negotiated, and they came to the conclusion, someone did, that this was a good idea. And all it did was postpone things for 10 years. Though we've limited some things, one analysis of this from a very comprehensive, very competent source stated this. He says, after reading the 159-page Iranian nuclear deal document, here is my conclusion. Now, this man is very intelligent. Uh, He has been in the political circles for years, he says, Here is my conclusion. The deal is just simply insane. This was his conclusion. The deal does not live up to the very red lines that President Obama and his team set forward. The deal doesn't end Iran's nuclear program, it legalizes it, legitimizes it, and expands it. The deal provides Iran not just one, but two paths to the bomb in the next 10 to 15 years if Iran keeps the agreement, and much sooner if, they, if Iran cheats. The details inside the deal are absolutely stunning, he says, and catastrophically dangerous for the U.S. 
and all of her allies, such as Israel and the Sunni Arab nations. The former CIA director, James Woosley, who is a Democrat, he said this would be a perfectly reasonable agreement if it were with, say, a country like Denmark. (laughs) That is, that it is a reasonable, sane agreement to make with a peaceful, moderate, friendly government. But as Woosley had said, who once ran the, the CIA under the Clinton administration, and notes, to make this particular deal with a terrorist regime in Tehran with the history of cheating is foolishness and dangerous act and a momentary solution to a long-term problem. It's ridiculous. And we made it. These deals are being made. Again, temporal expedience, long-term disasters. Undoubtedly, in 2015, how could we escape those words that we saw so often? Those four letters that continue to haunt us, ISIS. And when we consider the aggression of ISIS and the two Paris attacks in which they levied, and then to San Bernardino and to Turkey and to other places in the world, how is it possible that such an organization, after all that we have done, and I believe that many of those things that we had done was necessary, we now are confronted with this reality. The ISIS regime, as once stated, is a darkness falling across the Middle East and North Africa. The forces of freedom are retreating. Muslim and Christians are being slaughtered. Jews are being targeted for destruction. And in 2016, the worst could still yet to come. This article was written on December 31st of this month. Let us remember that in January 2015, the Islamic State vowed to turn the U.S. into a Muslim province and capture and kill President Obama. Thankfully, they have not been able to do such a thing. But let's be clear. The understanding of ISIS requires us to understanding Islamic eschatology. Why these people are doing what they are doing, it is in line with how they believe the end of the world is going to come about. And they must impose an Islamic kingdom across the world, a caliphate, and once they do just that, they will allow their 12th imam to come and to establish Islam across the entire world. This is their agenda. This is what they are doing. As they stated at the beginning of 2015, know, Obama, that we will reach America. And ISIS terrorists said in a video released online, we will cut off your head in the White House. After the Paris attacks on most of the news-generating stations, CNN and others, individuals got up there, so-called experts from the United States of America, stating that ISIS was not on U.S. soil. Three weeks later, we have an issue in San Bernardino, California. Now, one year later, after the deadly attacks in Paris, San Bernardino, Turkey, Beirut, Baghdad, and all across Syria and Iraq, 
The leaders of the Islamic State are signaling that they are yet planning a catastrophe uh, and a wave of new attacks in 2016. In a chilling yet familiar language, he says that feels very, very similar to what we have heard before. Their goals for 2016 are this, and they elaborated them in this video that they just released at the end of 2015. Number one, to conquer Jerusalem, Mecca, and Medina. Now that might sound strange to most of you because now they're going after Islamic targets as well as Jerusalem. Adiolate, this is out of their own mouth, all Jews, Christians, and Muslims, infidels. Wait a minute, Muslim infidels? Yes, because those individuals that we consider moderate, peaceful Muslims, they consider infidels. That they are not living up to the Muslim faith the way they should be living. They want to establish a global Islamic kingdom, or caliphate as it's called, and hasten the end of days and the coming of the Islamic Messiah known as the Mahdi. Listen to what one said. With the help of Allah, we are getting closer to you every day, ISIS chief Abu Barak al-Bahadi warned the U.S. and of the state of Israel in a newly released 24-minute audio recording. The Israelis will soon see us in Palestine. This will no longer be a war of crusaders against us. It is the entire world that is fighting against us right now. So they're going after everybody. He went on to say that this is all a precursor to the caliphate which they believe is going to erupt volcanoes of jihad everywhere around the world. This was just released. And they believe that in this they will destroy Christianity, Judaism, and all who hold to Muslim traditions that are not according to their standards. Now it is finally taking place, I believe, that America is waking up to the understanding of the Islamic ideology that is starting to penetrate these people's minds and hearts and so forth. But it's so far after the fact. In fact, in Middle East peace talks, our government is moderating for these individuals, and the hardliners against the advance of ISIS right now is, of course, France. What happened? What happened? Listen to what he said. While the mainstream media in the West has been slow to pick up on the significance of eschatology driving ISIS, I am encouraged that both the New York Times and now the UK Express have publicized articles this month, December 2015, about the Islamic end times theology driving leaders of ISIS and their vision of drawing the Western armies into what they call the forces of Rome, into an apocalyptic battle in the northern area of Syria known as uh, Dubuque, um, I'm sorry, Dubuque, Iowa. <laughs> D-A-B-I-Q. Dubuque. It's about time that we wake up and we understand what is taking place here. Because I believe that what is going on with ISIS and what has allowed them to arise to such a place is because there has been a vacuum of leadership 
that has been forced upon this world. Let me explain what I mean by this. In the last two to three years, probably almost four years, we have seen the rise of Russia again in the world's arena like never before. Now, how many of you were alive during President Ronald Reagan's administration? How many of you remember the wall coming down and everybody clapping that the Soviet Union was finally disbanded? And we all cheered. I will tell you that Russia is rising to power once again so quickly and so recklessly, and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, that it is something to actually be very, very concerned about. And the reason for it, folks, is because of the foreign policy that our nation has adopted. I don't know what that is. But it seems to be appeasement, more appeasement, and further appeasement. When Chamberlain came back from the negotiations with Adolf Hitler in the 1930s, he had an agreement in his hand, he says, peace in our time, and, he, and they appeased Hitler there at Munich. And a year later, he invaded Poland. And World War II began. From that experience, there was a saying, appeasing an aggressor only makes an aggressor more aggressive. And a doctrine was adopted by the United States from World War II on that we need to be strong to deter such aggression. We're abandoning that. And we believe that the United States of America, which up until just a couple of years ago was the only superpower in the world, we had a responsibility. Now, nobody wanted to be the police of the whole entire world, but I'm thankful for those men who decided that we needed to be, to some degree. And as a result, we were able to hold certain things abey. The Cold War was a Cold War because the United States and Russia were enemies with you know, mutual destruction as their doctrine, meaning that if it goes, it's all going to go. So no one's going to light the first match. But today, it is apparent to me that Russia feels that they can rise to the surface. And at a document that Vladimir Putin just released at the end of 2015, this is from Reuters. Russia has named the U.S. as one of the threats to its national security in a new assessment signed by President Vladimir Putin on Thursday, according to published reports. This changes their strategic strategy of national security of Russia, or the Russian Federation, and replaces the document that was put into place in 2009 where the U.S. and NATO were not mentioned. For the first time, Russia has officially named the U.S. a national security threat according to Reuters. This is what the conclusion was. Russia claims its heightened global reach has caused counteraction from the U.S. and its allies, which are striving, listen to what they say here very closely, striving to retain their dominance in global affairs. 
The document claims that the Western pressures pressures will likely lead to increased political, economic, and military and informational pressure on Russia. But notice that word, that we retain their dominance in global affairs. I am going to say this, that many in the world today have either openly stated or inferred to that we are weak as a nation today. And the rise of ISIS, the rise of Russia, men like Vladimir Putin, who are extraordinary leaders, strong leaders, are taking advantage of this time. In 2008, President Obama stated that change would come. One of the first politicians to truly keep his promise. Change has come. In 2008, American people were saying, let's no longer worry about the world around us. Let us just simply focus on domestic issues. And that's what they did. Not realizing that that initial decision was going to have such lasting consequences. This year, we are faced with selecting a new president. And I'm going to conclude today's message by sharing with you this morning who I believe is going to be the most dangerous man of 2016. A man that we have to consider a legitimate foe. An individual that is going to make things very difficult for the United States going forward, economically, globally, politically, etc., We need a leader that is going to be able to stand up at this moment in time and say, enough's enough, whoever that person may be. But I'm telling you, this is the stage that's being set. Decisions that we have made in the past are coming to haunt us today. We simply could not neglect the world around us and say that everything was going to stay the same, and the United States of America was always going to be the same nation, and we were always going to have the same strength, etc. But in the transition, and many will argue that what we are doing today should have happened years ago, that we are giving the United Nations the role that they should have always played. Really? Has anybody considered if the United Nations is up to the task? They're not. I'm bringing this all to a point in just a moment, but I want to share with you who I believe is the most dangerous man in 2016. Vladimir Putin. And why do I say this? He's a strong leader, folks. He sees an opportunity. And he is driving towards a goal and an agenda as fast as he possibly can. And he is just waiting for the world to say something or to do something. I'm not advocating military action. I'm not advocating that we... But I'm trying to tell you that a vacuum was created because the United States of America decided that we're no longer going to be the strong nation that we once were. And that vacuum is being filled now. And we saw the aggression as he moved into Ukraine, right? We saw those pictures. Then he moved into the Middle East trying to secure the resources of the Middle East for 
the Russian economy, which is the most scary element of it all. This man is moving at light speed with a fragile economy behind him. It tells me that he is taking, he's going for it. Now is the opportunity. And we all remember that before the second presidential election, there was that interview that was captured by all the major news sources where Obama said to Putin, once I get reelected, I can do more. Really? What has happened? Have we forgotten the men who stood up and said no more? Even President Bill Clinton, when he saw the aggression that was happening in some of the Eastern European countries, he sent NATO in and said no more. This is not going to happen. And yet, how many pictures of men, women, and children do we have to see slaughtered? How many? Men being beheaded, one right after another. How much? How long? Christians fleeing for their lives. This isn't some Christian propaganda. This is all over the world. Christians are being persecuted openly. And here, the United States of America is not saying anything. Folks, we need to understand the times in which we live. How dangerous is Vladimir Putin? Well, let's take it from his own mouth. This was one of the most fascinating things, and I want to share it with you this morning. I'm going to read it to you because it is so powerful. The question is, who is Vladimir Putin? And what does he really want? Why exactly has he suddenly sent tens of thousands of heavily armed Russian troops into Crimea? Why has he invaded Georgia in 2008? Why is he selling arms to bloodthirsty regimes like uh, Barar Ashad in Syria? And why is he selling both advanced arms and nuclear technology to rogue terrorist states like Iran? In the face of such questions, President Obama looked disoriented and confused. He and his national security team have been painfully slow to understand the Putin threat. They now scramble to develop a coherent and conceiving policy to contain Putin, much less have a chance to roll him back. The American people now see Putin as a real growing threat. This again was just released in the last month or so. And not just to the former Soviet republics, but to the national security of the United States and our allies, including the nation of Israel. This month, he says, I engaged McLaughlin and Associates a nationally respected polling firm, to ask a series of questions of a thousand likely U.S. voters. Among them, one of the questions was, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? In light of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine and Russia selling arms and nuclear technology to Iran and, and so forth, and Russia selling arms to the re, uh, regime of Assad in Syria, I have come to believe that Vladimir Putin and his government of Russia pose a clear and present danger to the national security of the United States and our allies, including Israel. In 2012, Mr. Obama mocked those who even raised such a question. Today, however, a remarkable 72% of Americans say they agree with such a statement. Only 19% disagree. Are they right? Is Putin a serious threat to the uh, uh, Americans? as they believe he is? Let's take the words from his own book. 
Six Russian reporters sat down with Vladimir Putin to try to understand who he was. Because remember, he was, he was in office, then he came out of office, then he went back into office. From his own book, they had six separate times to interview him. Each time lasted about four hours, and they asked him some very poignant questions. The first question that they asked him was, Putin, on his mission in life, what is your mission in life? My historical mission, he insisted, is to stop the collapse of the USSR. To do this, he vowed to uh, consolidate the armed forces and the interior ministry and the FSB, successor to the KGB, the secret police of the Soviet Union. If I can help save Russia from collapse, then I'll have something to be proud of. On his style, well, he says, everyone says I'm harsh and even brutal, Putin acknowledged without ever disputing such observations. Listen to what he says. A dog senses when somebody is afraid of it, and he bites. And he observes. The same applies to dealing with one's enemy. If you become jittery, they will think they are stronger. Only one thing works in such circumstances, to go on the offensive. You must hit first, and hit so hard that your opponent will not rise to his feet. Oh my gosh. On the different leaders of Russia, on the czars that preceded him, he says from the very beginning Russia was created as a super centralized state that's practically laid down in its genetic code, its traditions, its mentality of its people, said Putin. I'm certain of periods of time, in certain places, under certain conditions, monarchs have played and continue to this day to play a role, positive role in that development. The monarch doesn't have to worry about whether uh, he will be elected or not, or about petty political interests, or about how to influence the electorate. He can think about the destiny of the people and not become distracted with the, those things that are trivial, meaning any type of form of accountability. And his choice of most interesting political leader in history, Napoleon Bonaparte was his hero. On the rise from president, from a, being a spy in the Kremlin, I have a different position. No one controls me here. I control everybody else. On his critics, what do you think of your critics? Putin says, to hell with them. This is out of his own mouth. Who is Vladimir Putin? The evidence suggests that he sees himself not so much as a Russian president, but a new czar for a new age. He is determined to expand Russian territories by taking back what was lost when the Soviet Union imploded and restoring the glory of Mother Russia. Think about that for a minute. Now this gentleman went on to state this. Sensing a weakness in President Obama, he is ready to go on the offensive and hit first and hit so hard that his opponent will not rise to his feet. This is precisely why Putin is so dangerous. Even Hillary Clinton recently compared Russian leaders' tactics to those of Adolf Hitler. In some ways, she is correct. Putin is not building concentration camps, but he is hungry for power and territory, and he does not see a single leader in Europe or in Washington who has the courage to stop him. He is testing, probing, and finding no serious opposition. 
If he is not stopped, the question is not whether Vladimir Putin will hit another opponent and seize more territory. The question is simply, when will he do it? These, this is the experts of the world saying, this is what the world around us looks like. And yet, we want to be naive to these things. Let me wrap it all up for you this morning before we enter into communion. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let us read now, after all that we have discussed, the words of Paul to this church in Thessalonica. In verse 1 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need that I have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come as a, like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is, no, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Now listen to these words in preparation for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief in the night. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. For those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. When we look at the events of the world around us, they scream to us that we are living in a very instable society. We don't know what tomorrow brings or when the Lord will return. But many who study Bible prophecy see that it is no accident that Russia is rising to this power as Ezekiel 38 claimed that one day Magog would move into the Middle East. And many believe that Magog is Russia. Their chief ally in the Middle East was a nation called Persia. Today we call that nation Iran. We see such alliances being forged before us. As God said, Israel would be gathered into their land in Ezekiel 36 and 37, and then there would be an unfolding of events that take place before the Lord's return. Are we seeing those events before us? Have we not learned that the decisions that we make today have lasting consequences, uh, and therefore whatever we sow, we reap? If nothing else, let us in 2016 be Christians who are diligent to make good decisions. And one of those decisions that we are faced in making this year is who is going to lead our nation going forward. Now, if you believe as a Christian that voting is not something that you should take part of, I would like to say to you in all love how adamantly I disagree with you. 
Men and women died for the privilege that we may vote our leaders into office and vote other leaders out of office. Our voting is is the ability to give our politicians a pink slip as much as hiring them for the job. And yet when Christians don't participate and all they do is complain about the direction of our nation and where our nation is going, how can they see them not being part of the problem rather than part of the solution? We should write our local leaders. You can be as disenchanted with our political system as you want, but if you disengage from it altogether, then don't criticize it. Because we still have a vehicle in which we can change. And let me ask you a question. If you are a parent of young children here today, I ask you the question, do you not want your children to enjoy some of the freedoms that you enjoyed? I can honestly tell you that at 47 years old, I enjoyed freedoms as a teenager that my daughter will never know. Things are changing. I have a responsibility that if the Lord tarries, to fight for my daughter, to fight for my family. We have sat by idly for so long. And there are those, and I speak to you this morning too because I need to, that have misinterpreted the sovereignty of God to justify our inactivity. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Is He going to do what He is going to do? Absolutely. But I don't know what all that is. And if the Lord tarries, then let me be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Let me vote my heart and my conscience. Let me write a letter to my representative, even if it falls on deaf ears. And most importantly, let us be praying for our, for our leaders in this nation. 2016. That is my challenge to myself. That the decisions I make in 2016, I am going to weigh out carefully. Because I have learned not only from my personal experience in life, but from the world around me, the decisions we make today have lasting consequences, and therefore let me make the right decision today, even if the right choice is the hardest choice to make. Do the right thing. We have a phenomenal year ahead of us. Why? Because the Lord goes before us. And as the world plays out, there are things I know that we cannot control, but there are things that we can also be part of. 